Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. This is the 10th episode of season 12 and our theme this season is organ donation and transplantation. I'm very excited for today's show to feature former professional soccer player who was born with a congenital heart defect, Chuck Estrada. He is here to share his story with us about his heart journey and to help us better understand some common misconceptions regarding organ donation and transplantation. Today's show is entitled, Transplant Recipient Debunks Myths About Transplantation. Chuck Estrada was born on February 26, 1974, with transposition of the great arteries, or TGA, and he had a mustard procedure repair in 1976 at Texas Children's Hospital by none other than a great Dr. Denton Cooley. Despite having TGA, Chuck is a former professional soccer player. He played with an ejection fraction, or EF, of 30% for most of his career. He had four ICDs from the age of 19 to 39 when he received a heart transplant. He amazed everyone by walking out of Cedar Sinai's in Los Angeles only seven days after transplant and playing half a season in the United Premier Soccer League or UPSL, just four months post-transplant. He is currently a head coach for a UPSL team in Colorado. But the reason he's on our program today is because he wants others to have a better understanding of the myths surrounding transplantation. Chuck is going on five years with his new heart, and he has become a very strong advocate for organ donation and transplantation. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna Chuck. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Anna. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. I believe you are the very first professional soccer player that has ever been on Heart to Heart with Anna. Oh, that sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. I actually had an Olympic figure skater who was also born with a heart defect. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Wiley was actually born with bicuspid aortic valve, and he came on and talked during our Cardiac Athlete series. Oh, wow. That's great. I know that the snowboarder was also born with a CHD. That's right. Sean White. Hey, Sean White. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's more and more of you out there. That is what is so exciting to me is that you all are having such successful surgeries that you are able to lead a much more normal life. And in some cases like yours and Sean White's and Paul Wiley's, an extraordinary life. Yeah. I tell you, in looking back the years that I have 44 years now since I was born and 42 since I've had the mustard repair. Even back then, they didn't think that even with those types of procedures done, that we would have a very long life expectancy. So I'm really excited to be here and talk with you about all of this. Well, let's go way, way, way back in time. 
as I know you probably don't remember your muster procedure since you were so young. But why don't you talk to us about what it was like growing up in the 70s and 80s with that big scar down your chest? That's an interesting question there, Anna. For me, I really didn't notice or really have a fear of showing my scar. Like a lot of CHDers, we grew up understanding that going to the hospital, having appointments is just a regular part of life. So that's how my parents treated me, was just another one of their four children. And I really never had a predisposition, so to speak, to wanting to cover anything up. So I just thought, Everyone else had a scar. And as a young boy, I went swimming. I did all those things just thinking it was normal. So you have three brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two older brothers and one younger sister. Okay. And did your older brothers just treat you like one of the gang? Yeah. Uh, everybody <laughs> just treated me like one of the gang. It was, <laughs> at times... Uh, I had a little bit that I could use for an excuse, but, you know, really was just... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like too much. one of the boys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so two older brothers, that'll normalize you more than anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Really fast. Now, were your brothers also soccer players? Actually, my oldest brother was a soccer player. He actually played professionally in Germany. My dad is a retired Army senior officer. Okay. I got a chance to see the world. Uh-huh. And part of that, I was able to see some of the best doctors in the world, like Dr. Denton Cooley, when we were stationed there in Houston. So it was a great way for me. I think I had some care that was exceptional, mm -hmm. mostly because with my father being in the military, he was able to choose duty stations based on the fact that I was a child in need of health care. So we were able to go back to some of the best in the world, such as Dr. Cooley there at Texas Children's Hospital. That's just amazing to me. And I love it that your brother was also a soccer player. Is that where your love for soccer came from? No, actually, it wasn't. My love of soccer came from the fact that I was actually a standout high school baseball player. And here in Colorado, where I grew up, uh, pretty much, we moved here in 1986. So I was around 12 years old when we moved here. Soccer was just another way of keeping in shape during the off season because we had pretty harsh winters. We didn't have a baseball program that lasted all year round. It was just for the springtime. So soccer fell in the fall. So I played soccer in the fall and played baseball and actually wrestled a couple of years in high school as well. Wow. Just to stay in shape. Wow. Well, what amazed me was when I was reading your bio and you said that you played soccer with an ejection fraction of 30% for most of your career. The research that I did stated that a normal EF is 55% or higher. So having one at 30% is almost half of what it should be. How did having such a low EF affect your quality of life during that time? That's a really good question, Anna. I think for me, and I think for most CHD children that actually are able to be active and grow up, become teenagers and young adults. We learn coping mechanisms. We learn about our bodies and we know the signs and symptoms of when something is catastrophic and something is very minor. So for me, it was just being able to have a mindset 
and push through things. It wasn't going to get any better for me. So basically what I had to do was find a way that I could cope with having such a low EF. The most common side effect or effect that I had while I was playing was I would get migraine type headaches. So I learned early on that taking some extra strength Tylenol or some ibuprofen before a game really limited those headaches for me. So I was able to play a full game in most cases. But as I got older and my career was only 12 years long, I retired just at the age of 33 or so. My EF played a factor later not earlier in my career and earlier in my life, because as I got older, I realized that I needed more recovery time. That was really the biggest thing. Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart, and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. So Chuck, you were saying that the problem with your ejection fraction was not that it happened because it was happening for a while, but that as you got older, it took you longer to recover from it. Yes, that's exactly what would happen. I would see myself playing in a game on Saturday and essentially taking five to six days to fully recover, only realizing that I'm playing a game the next day or in the next couple of days. So my training suffered from me suffering from a heart that didn't pump very well. And with those EF issues, I also had issues with Irregular heart rhythms, AFib, which is a common term that obviously us CHDers use. From the time I was 19 up until transplant, I suffered from a lot of arrhythmia issues. And I remember going back to 19 during finals week when I was in my second year of college, I felt kind of weird. I figured I was stressed out, but I wanted to make sure everything was okay. I called over to home and asked my parents to set up an appointment for me to see my pediatric cardiologist. They did that. I flew home. Once I got home, I went to the doctor's office here in Colorado Springs and laid down like I normally do. They hooked up their EKG machine. I'm figuring everything is normal. The nurse just gets pale Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to figure out and trying to read her on what the heck is going on, the doctor comes in and he says, we called an ambulance. We are going to get you over to the hospital. Now, the funny thing is that I was literally across the street from the hospital, but they still took me by ambulance from one building to the next building. And once I got to the hospital, they had to cardiovert me because they couldn't get my rhythm figured out. So they didn't even feel safe putting you in a wheelchair and running across the street with you? They actually felt they needed to call an ambulance and put you on a stretcher? 
Wow. That, and <laughs> one of the first questions my doctor asked was, how did you get here? And I said, I drove. Oh, and the look on his face. <laughs> I think that's what happens with CHDers. We go through a lot of different experiences. We don't know if this experience is something that's detrimental or if this is just something else that is part of run of the mill. Oh, well, since you have TGA or whatever, this is kind of how we live. So, yeah. 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 And it didn't end there. Not only did you get taken by a stretcher and an ambulance over to the hospital, but then they were insistent on doing something else to you, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They cardioverted me and then they came in and said, it's time for a pacer. And at 19 years old, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm still playing sports at school. I don't want to give that up. So question wasn't about, oh, no, now do I have to stop? My question was, what do we need to do to get me back on the field? Right, right. Was your doctor surprised by that attitude? Yeah, he was. And he had been my doctor for quite some time at that point. But yeah, I think he was surprised. He also knew the type of mind frame that I had. He was my doctor all the way through junior high and high school and saw me excel in sports at that point in time. So I think he realized saying no was probably not going to be an answer I was going to accept. (laughs) I love that. Now, what did your mom do to help you? Because she knew that you weren't going to take no for an answer either. That she did. That's a great thing about my parents. Instead of saying, okay, let's have a talk about finding other avenues to occupy my time with, they knew that I was going to do this one way or the other. So my mom, being as crafty as she is, she went and she bought these cycling shirts, these tight spandex shirts, and she patched in these foam patches on the left side of the shirt where it would fit on the top part of my chest. And she said, well, We know that the pacer can't get damaged. I'm going to build this foamy thing on the shirt (laughs) and go ahead and go play. So I spent the rest of college and my first couple of years playing professionally with this spandex shirt underneath my jersey and like (laughs) looked like I had a boob job on the left side and nothing on the right side because of how much the pads protruded from the shirt. But hey, for me, it was normal. It was one thing that I knew. To appease my mother, I was going to wear this and knowing that damage to this pacer. And I think the other thing, we talk about me being a soccer player. I was a goalkeeper. So I was getting shots taken at me left and right all day long. And not only was I a goalkeeper, I played a sport that a lot of people don't know there's a professional sport out there. I played professional indoor soccer, which is a lot like hockey and basketball put together but you kick the ball. So I was in close quarters making saves, guys kicking these balls at 45, 50 miles an hour from 10 feet away, 12 feet, 15 feet away. Wow. Now, did it ever hit where the padding was? And did that actually help to protect it? You know, I'd like to say yes, it did. (laughs) I was definitely hit quite a few times. I mean, (laughs) my chest, my face, I mean, getting hit all over the place. But there came a time where I decided that it became a little bit too cumbersome to wear. So I stopped wearing those pads Mm. probably my third year playing at the professional level. And I can say I've gotten hit there quite a few times with a pace or an ICD, but really never had any issue. Thank goodness. Knock on wood, I guess. 
Well, now you said that you had several pacemakers and ICDs. Were they getting smaller and a little bit less worrisome as you grew older? Yeah, I mean, they did. And when I went from pacer to ICD, the units that we had at that point in time were a little bit smaller than the pacers for some reason. Mm -hmm. But every implant was placed in the exact same location, just one after the other after the other. So I don't know if I built enough scar tissue or just some muscle mass that I was able to put on that also helped protect it. But Mm -hmm. those things stayed in place for the most part. Well, let's fast forward and talk about when you discovered that you would need a heart transplant. Okay. So I stopped playing soccer in 2007. And 2008, I was approached by a professional soccer team that was coming to Denver, and they were looking for a head coach. I ended up getting the position as a head coach in 2008 and spent two years training, coaching, And at that point in time, I really started to decline in health. In 2010, they classified me as stage four congestive heart failure. Oh, wow. The way this all happened, actually, my ex-wife, her nephew had a birthday the summer of 2010 in July. And we went up to Denver from Colorado Springs. I live in Colorado Springs, which is about 60 miles from Denver. We all decided to go up to Denver and they have an amusement park. We were going to do that and then stay the night because the following day, I actually had my yearly checkup at the hospital at University of Colorado. And the night that we got back from all the fun stuff at the amusement park, I wasn't feeling very well at all. So I ended up driving myself once again to UCH, to their emergency room. And then that's when they realized that The congestive heart failure has just gotten to a point where it was time to do something. So they admitted me immediately, July of 2010, and I spent two weeks in the hospital. And within those two weeks or during those two weeks, they came in and said, we need to start evaluating you for heart transplant. Wow. That's kind of when it hit us, at least for me as a CHD kid and young adult, We always thought about transplant. You know, I thought, man, if I got a transplant, that would fix everything. So when we got to that point in 2010, I was on board. I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's go through the transplant. Let's go through the process. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blues Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, 
a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. I was really interested when you said how when you were younger, you used to think, oh, I just need to get a heart transplant and then I'll be fixed because I think that is something that most people think. Tell us what the truth is. Let's debunk this to begin with. What is it like to really get a heart transplant? Oh, wow. That's a great question, Anna. And I can say this. Getting a heart transplant, although it has saved my life, the last five years has been probably the toughest portion of my life. And you learn this when you go through the evaluation process. Just like anything else, they evaluate you, they decide if you're a good candidate, and then they sit you down and through the process, they bring in social workers, psychiatrists, so on and so forth, and they explain this transplant process. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there with my family in this room at University of Colorado Hospital, and one of the cardiothoracic surgeons, he explains to me and to everybody in the room, and the first thing he says to us is, you need to understand that transplant is not a cure. Mm -hmm. It is just an option of treatment. That is it. What we're going to find out as we go through this process he tells us, is that we're basically trading in a set of problems that we have right now with this heart for a whole set of problems after transplant. Yeah. And the biggest problem or the biggest issue is surviving the transplant. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to think about that. So here we are, as bad as we feel, and knowing that our heart is giving out, but we can still get around and do things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing they tell you is, okay, we're trading it in, but the biggest thing that can happen is you lose your life by this choice. Right, which is huge. That's a huge concern. It is. Of course, I get presented with that option, and of course I say, let's do it. You are ready to go. I know I totally get it because you are feeling so bad. I mean, I think about you living with that ejection fraction of 30% for year after year after year. And as you age, you get older, it starts taking you longer to recover. You're not feeling so good. You're having to go through these ablations, which is no fun. And going through one ICD after another. I mean, it's not like you had an easy life. I can imagine you saying, wait a minute, let's just try it. <laughs> it's got to be better than what I've been going through. Exactly. Okay. So first myth we debunked, first of all, it's not a cure and you won't be the bionic man. No. However, you are a lot better now than you were when you did have a very sick heart. Yes, I'm definitely better now, but this process now post-transplant is five years. Now, if we go back to pre-transplant, I was listed in October of 2010. I waited on the transplant list for a thousand days. Oh my goodness. So at a thousand days, they basically called me in and the doctors at UCH, which again, I credit them for saving my life. They weren't egotistical to the point where they felt like it only had to be them. They actually said, Hey, we're not going to find you a heart. It's not going to happen here. So we have to send you somewhere else. Wow. And that somewhere else was Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, which is the number one transplant 
hospital in the world. And I took that and I ran with it. Now, how long were you at Cedar Sinai before you got your heart? Okay, so that's a great question. A thousand days I waited here in Colorado. And Colorado is a regional hospital. So it serves not only Colorado, Wyoming, North and South Dakota, New Mexico, and Nebraska. I get to Los Angeles. I go through their evaluation process. I get approved. I get listed there. From getting listed to the day I received my heart was 39 days. Wow. Exactly. Wow. The other wow part about that is that this heart that I have now was actually the fifth offer that they had in 39 days. So they had four other hearts that were offered to my doctors for me, but my doctors turned them down until this one came up. So I waited for a thousand days in Colorado and never got an offer. Less than 40 days, I get five offers and I'm on the table September 8th of 2013. Unbelievable. Okay. So let me ask you a couple of other questions that I think are myths about transplant. For example, did your parents have a lot of money? Did the reason why you got offered those five hearts, was it because you had enough money to go to California and you were put higher on the list? Oh, didn't you know, Anna, my last name is Trump? No. <laughs> no, I didn't know that, Chuck. Although my father did very well, like I said, he's a retired Army senior officer, and then he built a career after the military and the defense industry. No, we're talking about me. I'm not talking about what my father has or or any of that stuff. For me, I was, at the time, 36, 37, 38, 39-year-old that finally got on disability, which is a whole different thing I can talk about. But I was this man that was on disability who had a wife and a stepkid to provide for and had limited income. So yeah, what it comes down to, and I think what people hear about, and they do, they do talk about these celebrities that get all these different types of transplants. And the first thing you say is, oh, it's because they have money. Well, UNOS, which is the governing body for organ donation, they are very subjective. So you have to fit certain criteria to even be listed for a transplant. It doesn't make a difference if it's a heart, lung, kidney, liver. It doesn't make a difference. But one of the main criteria is that you have to have the ability to pay for your transplant. And for 99.999% of the people out there, it's insurance. And you have to have insurance. I mean, that's the first question is do you have insurance? And if I would have said no, then the possibility of me getting listed was probably zero to nothing. Wow. Wow. I have one more question for you. The time has flown and I'm going to have to have you come back on the show, Chuck, because you're so fascinating. But just for us to debunk one more thing that I've heard about, or, or maybe not debunk, but let's just talk about this. I have a lot of friends and children of friends who have had heart transplants, and they tell stories about waking up and craving foods that they didn't used to like or picking up habits that they didn't used to have and come to find out the donor 
liked those foods or the donor had those habits. What do you think of those stories? Oh, that's a very good and interesting question, to be honest with you, Anna. I can tell you this. Before transplant, I would definitely say those people who have said those things were either trying to get attention or trying to, I don't know, just because, you know, people come up with different stories and they want to sound interesting. So I can tell you this, and I don't know if this is related to or not, and I don't think anybody does. I know there are a couple of books out there that talk about systemic muscle memory, which is the ability to pass on or to possess muscle memory from someone else who has donated. And I think that's still kind of up in the air, whether or not that's really something that happens or not. But I can tell you this, after transplant, two things happened. From the time I woke up after being on anesthesia to now, two things happened to me that are unexplained. The first thing is I kept seeing, and I would be wide awake, and I kept seeing yellow and red just kind of in this blurry state of vision if I were staring at something. I don't know why. I don't know why yellow. I don't know why red. But those two things for about a week just kind of popped in my head, even when I knew that I was clear and or awake. So... I don't know where that came from. The other thing is not that I didn't dislike dill pickles before transplant, but after transplant, I had an insatiable craving for dill pickles. I go, <laughs> really, I go through probably, I go to Whole Foods to buy the pickles at Whole Foods, and I go uh -huh. through our pickles on a weekly basis. Wow. And I eat those pickles with everything. <laughs> so, that's one I, we're trying to debunk. I, I don't think I can debunk that one, but I also don't know why. It's just one of those things. And I understand now why people have said that they feel different or they have different things that have happened to them after transplant and they want to link it to the donor. Now, the only thing I know about my donor is that he was 27 male and he was from the central part of California. I have consciously made a decision not to reach out to the donor family at this point in time because up until this point, this last year, I had a lot of issues with rejection for about two and a half years. So I didn't think I'd be here. If you would have asked me two and a half years ago and we did this interview then, I probably would have told you I wasn't going to make the five-year mark because I had wow. so many issues. Wow. Well, see, so you just confirm what my other friends and children and friends have said. Well, and I think what you said is true. Maybe there's something physiological to that whole experience. I think that's fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Chuck. This has been great. No, Anna, thank you. I really appreciate you asking me to come on. And as I've told you before, I love and I want to share my story because people out there need to hear stories like this and understand as CHDers and CHD parents that life isn't lost because you have a CHD. I want to spread that word. I love it. I love it. Well, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. Find us on YouTube. Just look up my name, Anna Jaworski. And my deaf kids used to say it's three little words, Jaworski, J-A-W-O-R-S-K-I. And please subscribe. Mm -hmm.
And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.